The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... In this instance, you know, Asian immigrants walk this fascinating in-between space and line between included and excluded, welcomed and people who were not welcomed. We are calling another meeting of The Urbanist Book Club over the next two weeks as we explore some recent publications that have caught our attention in the city sphere. This week, we're speaking to two authors whose books unpack two different tales of American urbanisation. From the post-World War II suburban boom that brought rise to ethnic enclaves in California and beyond, to one of the United States' biggest cities, Chicago, and how its own building boom saw its iconic skyline silhouette take shape. That's coming up over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. The American suburbs are vastly diverse places that are steeped in mythology and misconceptions. Popular culture has long produced versions of the suburb, but their true tales are complex and often explain wider areas of the urban environment, such as gentrification and immigration. James Zarzadias is the author of Resisting Change in Suburbia, a book that delves into the story of the American suburb and the history of Asian immigration through the example of the San Gabriel Valley, just one ethno-burb that developed in the country after the Second World War. And I'm happy to say that James is with me now on the line. James, thank you so much for joining us on The Urbanist. Let's start with the setting in which your story about the suburbs unfolds. Can you first describe a little bit about the San Gabriel Valley? San Gabriel Valley is one of the principal valleys of greater Los Angeles. The suburbs of LA that I talk about are east of downtown Los Angeles. So those of you who are not as familiar with greater LA, they're more inland. And these suburbs, about 2 million people live in the region. So it's not a small place. And these communities largely developed after World War II. Some of them were a little bit older that go back to the early 20th century, if not prior. But in terms of suburbs themselves, many of them, particularly in the East San Gabriel Valley, really grew after World War II, especially by the 1960s and certainly by the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s, when a lot of new housing, mostly single family homes, strip malls, eventually office parks and industrial parks opened up and really turned these from 
agricultural rural places, places that once horses were roaming and cows were roaming and farms were thriving to full-fledged suburbs. And today, if you go to the San Gabriel Valley, whether it's the west side of the valley or the east side of the San Gabriel Valley, these are more densely populated. And as I discuss in the book, much more racially and ethnically diverse as well. And just tell me, when we think of suburbs in, in Europe, we often don't quite know what we mean in an American context. But when I looked at some of the pictures in the book, these are big houses on nice plots often. And you talk about density, but there's still a sense that, you know, this is probably a pretty nice place to live. I would say that most people would say, especially those who, of course, who bought property there, that this is a nice place to live. These landscapes, like a lot of American suburbs, you know, these were, again, once rural agricultural lands that developed into suburban tracts and communities. So you have this, you know, very picturesque landscape, in this case of Southern California, rolling hills and idyllic, verdant fields. And among these fields and and landscapes are these relatively big, sprawling ranch homes, some cases mansions. And part of these communities emerged, you know, not only of housing demand, because developers, multinational home builders, and planners played a role in basically creating these communities from the ground up and not only selling homes, but selling lifestyles. So in the book, a lot of these communities came in with kind of lifestyle branding, if you want to call it that. We have to think about, you know, after World War II, especially in the 1950s and 60s, this is like the, the golden era of advertising in America. You've probably seen Mad Men, or at least a lot of people know, and that kind of era of how to brand and, and how suburbanites lived. And so they're selling these rural country Western lifestyles that evoked to a, an old American West that was appealing to a lot of Californians and West Coasters. And I want to be clear and say that this is not specific to L.A. You see this throughout the United States in the second half of the 20th century, especially the latter third of the 20th century, where you have suburbs of Atlanta, suburbs of Houston, suburbs of Washington, D.C., developers and home builders and planners leaning into this idea of let's romanticize and glorify what was once here and turn it into suburban ways, right? So if it was once, you know, a citrus grove, or if these were once cattle lands, let's kind of emphasize that this was once the old ranch or the old farm. And how do we market that in ways that in some ways is appealing, you know, making rural nostalgia appealing to what would eventually be suburban homeowners. And so ultimately, one of the things to keep in mind, if you're reading this book, and those of you who are interested, is to understand how suburbanization is not just a process of meeting demand for buyers after World War II, and through the 20th century, but also trying to sell lifestyles that people wanted to buy into. And James, what's interesting is you you talk about the myth in a way, but even people who moved into these communities and when they saw the reality of life there, it wasn't exactly living with cowboys just over the hill, but they bought into the myth of the landscape and of the the homes and of the buildings and the culture of the place. And of course, the first people, as you, you make clear to move in, were often white Americans who had a very clear vision of what this myth of the American dream would look like. But your story charts something which is fascinating is what happens to that myth and and how people respond as other communities arrive. Absolutely. You know, the big 
takeaway of this book is the power of myth in American culture and life. And I'm not saying that's, of course, exclusive to America, but in many ways, you know, a lot of these cultural fictions of the American dream rooted in the single family suburban home dictated and shaped how a lot of suburbanites went about their lives, how they voted, how they civically engaged, how they saw the world. And as such, many people, suburbanites in this region and during this time period, again, late 20th century, mid 20th century, early 21st century, they wanted to not only uphold these myths of the American dream and American suburbia, but they fought and worked hard to protect that in every way. And so when we're talking about how they fought and protected, I'm talking about how they implemented and pushed for certain design and aesthetic codes. You had a very strict land use policies around density so that these suburbs don't quote unquote urbanize or become too quote unquote city-like. And that you also had a range of other policies like requiring English language on signage for retail spaces, commercial spaces, regulations on design of, let's say, a Buddhist temple or spaces that are otherwise seen as non-traditionally Euro-American. And when Asian immigrants in this part of LA, but throughout the West Coast and, and even to a certain extent on the East Coast are settling and planting roots and establishing their lives in the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s, then white residents, not all, but some white residents and critics felt that these ideas of the suburbs and the American dream were, were now under threat because you have a community of color, oftentimes in this case, Chinese from Hong Kong and Taiwan, Koreans, Filipinos and Vietnamese, Indians and other groups of the Asian diaspora challenging this idea of the white middle class American suburb. And when they're confronted, and by there I'm talking about critics, when they're confronted with these challenges and differences, there's a range of reactions. And oftentimes in terms of the built environment, these were ones that tried to curb and control Asian aesthetic, Asian design or Asian culture in large part. So that's really what's fascinating here is seeing the reactions. Can I just jump in, James? Because I guess there was a couple of things that you're saying there that I find fascinating. Because first of all, you know, if this is an antagonistic environment in some ways, you know, this is an environment that is not going to bend initially, at least, to the cultures and the needs of these communities, whether they be Filipino or Chinese or Taiwanese. But what's interesting is the myth that you talked about is so seductive that despite all that, actually many people who are new communities in America or second generation communities in America, they look at the valley and they look at this community and they still want in. They still want to be part of this. Absolutely. And that is a huge theme in the book is that they are seductive, these ideas of suburban living and suburban life and Asian residents as well, as much as they try to modify the landscape and the cultures to suit them as immigrants in particular, they also try to uphold it. So there are alliances made, as I mentioned a moment ago, between residents across racial lines where they say, you know, yeah, we don't want a landfill opening up on our community. We don't want a sports stadium opening up on our community because that will bring down property values that will destroy disrupt our suburban idol. And as such, you know, they are by making these alliances and these relationships, they are also in a way protecting or trying to protect these myths and these lifestyles. So yeah, absolutely. They're transgressing, but they're also at the same time, simultaneously, right, trying to uphold certain lifestyles and ideas of suburban life. What was interesting also is, you know, the different communities, maybe, for example, Asian communities, when they look at Latinos or Latinas, when they look at Asians, they each kind of wonder who's holding up the bargain the best in a way, who's doing their bit to 
uphold standards, to protect property prices, or to assimilate or not to assimilate. Is it interesting when you look at the different communities and how they occasionally bump up against each other? That's right. Yeah. What you see in this part of Southern California, and this is, again, an interesting thing across America, is you have obviously racial segregation, class segregation. And in Los Angeles, greater LA, this includes the suburbs, you have that on full display where you have a suburb that is predominantly Latino next door to a suburb that's predominantly Asian next door to a suburb that maybe is predominantly white or has a white plurality. And so there is this kind of triangulation of races and kind of comparing, you know, how are Latinos engaging with the suburban built environment and their communities in the way that Asians are or aren't. And I discuss a little bit about that in the book, but I also, you know, don't emphasize that point because in this part of Los Angeles, in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s, a lot of the attention from critics, particularly white critics of these communities and the changes, were targeted at and aimed at Asian residents in particular. And they were seen as the biggest transgressors of suburban norms, right? At the same time, as we just discussed a moment ago, they were also seen as these ideal suburbanites because they were very much invested in protecting the prestige and image and lifestyle of these more middle class, but certainly in some cases, very affluent communities. And so in this instance, you know, Asian immigrants walk this fascinating in-between space and line between included and excluded, welcomed and people who were not welcomed. In the UK, for example, or in France or in many European countries, we went through a period maybe like 10 years ago where the suburbs were were seen as a bit questionable. And then because we had this donut effect that they became the place where you could buy actually a home a little bit cheaper than in the centre of the city. And so they were often the place where migrants would go. They were, they were down on their luck a bit. The pandemic changed that narrative in many ways. That lots of people suddenly saw the, the suburbs as incredibly desirable once again and wondered what would happen to the centres of our cities. What's that in that ebb and flow? What's the the investment value now? What's the mythology? What's the what is the lure of the suburb now in America? What's interesting is that within the last thirty years, certainly in the last twenty years in the United States, you know, I know urbanism looks and feels slightly different, and the people who live there are different between, let's say, here in Europe, is that the suburbs have demonstrated that. If people took action early in the 20th century to make these communities, quote unquote, prestigious and upscale by enforcing certain codes and design policies, they still are, for the most part, seen as desirable communities. But suburbs that didn't take that type of action in terms of having strict design guidelines or land use policies, now you see a range where some of these have maintained, you know, kind of manicured appearance and prestige. But many of them also haven't. They're more dilapidated. They're a little bit more, you know, rough around the edges than they once were. And so they're not as desirable. I mentioned this as an example because as we think about how suburbs have changed in America over the last few decades, I also think about how our cities have changed in America in the last few decades. And you start to see in many cases what's something more similar to European model where wealthier people are concentrated in the city or ultra wealthy people are concentrated in the American city. And everyone else, for the most part, has suburbanized or moved to the suburbs. And so I guess this is just kind of a broader thoughts and reactions is that if we're going to look at the future of the American suburb, we have to think about how they continue to diversify 
and that they still have mainstream and vast appeal. You know, suburbs are not going away. And I think it's important for architects, planners, policymakers, and just thinkers to really examine how suburbs have not only been changing in recent times, but how for very long periods, they've actually been at the heart of immigrant life. And that suburbs, when we think about them in America, we can't look and see them and subscribe to this idea that they are for the white and middle class anymore. Your book is is wonderful. It's an academic book, but it, it's written in a style of prose that I think that anybody would enjoy. And it's you know it documents big shifts, demographic shifts. But can I just ask, as we end the, our interview, I believe this was somewhere where you lived. You grew up in, in this community. What's your relationship to it now, and how do you feel it shaped you? Yeah, I was born and raised in the area, so that's my part of my interest, right? And this became a professional interest because... I noticed that for a lot of Asian Americans, and I'm a U.S.-born Asian American, it was very common for me to hear of where people lived that they were not in the city. I'd ask where they're from if they're of Asian descent, and they often said the suburbs. And so to me, I thought, I'm not the only one, right? Because I think for a lot of people around the world, and even here in, in North America, there's an association between city and people of color especially with Asian immigrants, they think of Chinatown, they think of Koreatown, they think of historic Japan towns, you know, like in San Francisco or LA, New York, Seattle, San Jose, and so forth. But it was my experience growing up that a lot of Asian American life took place in the suburbs. And so that's why for me, it was really important to not necessarily tell the story because I'm from there, but to kind of step back and see that this is actually a bigger story of American culture. And that immigrants are very much also part of the suburbanization process and they are shifting you know what it means to live in the outskirts of a metro area and so that's my personal and professional investment is to help us think about why suburbs matter and again for asian americans why the suburbs are actually in some ways the hub of our day-to-day life and so Thank you again, by the way, for mentioning it. This is an accessible book because that is really important for me as an academic to write things and to do research that a lot of folks can find not only relevant and germane to their everyday lives, but also something that, you know, gives them something to think about. James Zasa-Diaz, thank you for joining me today. And James's book, Resisting Change in Suburbia, is out now via University of California Press. As the way we engage with our central business district's changes and our efforts to create more climate-conscious buildings accelerates, our relationship with the skyscraper is evolving. Thomas Leslie is the author of Chicago Skyscrapers, 1934 to 1986, a book that explores how the Windy City's iconic skyline came to be and what was behind the building boom of the time. Monocle's David Stevens spoke with Thomas a little earlier, and David began by asking about Chicago's urbanization and how the city came to be. Chicago's geographic position in the middle of the United States meant that in the 19th century, it was the center of a number of really important trade routes, both by the Great Lakes, but also as railroads expanded west by rail. So basically, all of the agricultural wealth of the upper Midwest 
funneled through this one place at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And what that meant was that Chicago's economy boomed and gave rise to speculation, especially speculation about commodities. So there was always this kind of culture of speculation. And gradually that moved from not only agricultural commodities, but to actual real estate. So the land within the city where people were doing business. That fueled most of the growth and most of the effort to build high in the 19th century. Of course, if you build more stories, you charge more rent. So the skyscraper in a lot of ways is, a, as the Minneapolis architect Cass Gilbert put it, a machine for making the land pay. And that's really the story of the kind of early generation of Chicago high rises up through the teens and 20s. After World War II, there had been a long break in commercial construction downtown, so no high-rises at all really built between the, the Great Depression and the late 1940s. And companies started to reinvest in the city, but very slowly. And what really energized the post-war boom in Chicago was the administration of Mayor Richard J. Daley who consolidated political power in the city in sort of unique ways, and then used that power really to try to, to reshape Chicago into a sort of technically efficient, but also a really kind of more beautiful city in his view, and certainly a, a more modern one. So again, there's speculation in real estate. It makes more money if you can go higher but it definitely makes more money if you have a government that's on board and that sees the skyscraper as one of the tools that it can use to achieve its own ends, both politically, but also in terms of, of city development. So how did some of the really famous or, or big name or silhouette defining landmarks of Chicago come to be? Are there any kind of particular stories that you find the most interesting on, on how maybe the Wrigley Building or the, the Tribune Tower or the Stock Exchange, something like that came up? Yeah, I think there are a couple of, of skyscrapers that are really iconic. I mean, the, the skyline as a whole has always been considered one of the best in the world just because of the variety, but also the unity of approach that Chicago architects are often seen as having. I think some of them are very intentionally kind of ornamental and show-offy in a way. The Wrigley Building is one of the great kind of show-offy skyscrapers on the planet, and it was done very intentionally to try to compete with some of the post-World War I buildings that had gone up in New York. The tower is modeled after a church in Spain, uses white terracotta, and has a, a battery of floodlights across the river that just light it up at night. And there's a kind of quirk in the city's geography where Michigan Avenue, one of the city's main boulevards, kind of jogs to the east as it goes over the river right in front of the Wrigley Building. So at night, you see the Wrigley from you know a mile or so down Michigan Avenue. It's a real almost kind of lighthouse for the north side. In the post-war era, of course, aesthetics are different. Materials are different. There's no longer the kind of skilled crafts and labor that can produce that sort of ornamental terracotta. And so you get a very different approach. And I think the building that to me most clearly defines post-war Chicago is the John Hancock Center. Now just goes by its address, 875 North Michigan. But that building really encapsulates a lot of the development of the post-war era because it is both a commercial office building and an apartment tower. The apartment tower is stacked on top of the office building. 
And it's a real sort of example of the structural prowess that the city's engineers had. Fosler Khan, the great Skidmore Owings and Merrill engineer, came up with a way to not only make an efficient structure, it's called a tube structure. So the structure is mostly on the outside and that helps the building resist wind forces much more efficiently. But he also married the shape of the tower, which kind of spreads its feet out at the base again to resist wind with a kind of programmatic idea. And that is that apartments really want to be narrower than offices. You want more rooms that are closer to windows. And so as the building tapers, it switches from deep plan offices to smaller plan apartments. And in the middle where it changes, you get apartments that are maybe a little bit too deep, offices that are maybe just a little bit too narrow. But overall, the the structural shape and the ideal functional shape are really blended. And the fact that they create this kind of tapering, very elegant tower up at the north end of the city's magnificent mile, Michigan Avenue, really adds a kind of exclamation mark to the skyline that I think you know now people recognize as, as iconic. And that really does summarize a lot of the principles at work in the post-war era. So you speak about these towers at a specific time in Chicago's history, but I want to inquire now, how are they aging? And, and has there been a lot of development since the end of what you cover in the book up until now? Or is Chicago's skyscraper landscape actually quite old in a way? The city's legacy of skyscrapers has gone through a number of eras and, of course, changes in how people work, how people live, how the city has changed. And there are a couple of interesting things that have happened. One is that the 19th century and early 20th century buildings that for a long time were seen as obsolete in terms of office accommodations, usually because the floors were too small or there wasn't enough elevator servicing, Those, a lot of them have undergone a kind of rebirth as hotels, right? The city now is as much a kind of tourist attraction as it is a a business center. And there have been a number of projects that have gone in and looked at these kind of small floor plate 19th century buildings and realized that they're perfect as boutique hotels, especially. The post-war buildings, because they have much larger floor plates, have been a slightly more difficult task in terms of repurposing them or continuing their vitality. And especially now post-COVID, when work patterns have changed and people are at home more uh, and commuting to work a lot less, I think there are real questions about what the legacy of those larger commercial towers is likely to be. At the same time, they are big enough and kind of flexible enough that They've accommodated new generations of workers quite well over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years because the floor plates are wide open, because the construction, especially in steel, allows for a lot of space for services and wiring. But I think there are questions about what the nature of the central business district, the loop, is likely to be in the coming years, You know how we work differently, how we no longer maybe need the kind of giant offices that everyone comes to at nine in the morning. That's really what the loop kind of did best. It's this very, very dense collection of workplaces. And as that changes, I think there are legitimate questions about whether those patterns of building continue, but also what we do with large commercial buildings that might or might not be filled again anytime soon. And maybe just finally, you talk there about the changes that are coming and 
this boom that you're describing in the book came about partly because of innovations and materials and things like that. And that innovation is still growing. We're seeing a lot of timber towers and the height of timber towers growing and growing. Do you think that Chicago is due another boom? Do you think there is more to come? I think there's always prospectively another boom in Chicago and people have bet against the city and lost perpetually right, since the 19th century. So I think it's a city that has so much energy and so much of a legacy, it's hard to count out. So I think there's very likely to be another boom. The lesson I think that history teaches us is that no one knows quite when it's coming or what it's going to involve. But it is a city that's continually kind of reinvented itself, whether that's commercially or through tourism or something else. Chicago has always been thought of as a city of big skyscrapers. And there's a lot of expertise here in building large, but also in building dense, right? How you put a lot of people in one area or in one building. And I really do think that the emphasis is changing, not just in Chicago, but kind of worldwide, where we're no longer quite so impressed by the biggest or the tallest. We're much more interested and impressed, I think, by designing better. And when we see things like timber towers that are going up that are environmentally much, much more efficient than concrete or steel, you know, we may not be able to go a hundred stories ever with a timber tower, but we can certainly build buildings that are more responsible. And I think in some ways a lot healthier. And I think that's really where the interest, not just in Chicago, but worldwide is going with skyscrapers in general. Thomas Leslie there in conversation with Monocle's David Stevens. And Chicago Skyscrapers, 1934 to 1986, is out now via University of Illinois Press. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week. And also subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Colotta Rebello and David Stevens. David has also edited the show. And to pay you out this week, here's Snazback with Reading. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Listener.